welcome to New Oral Cultures. I'm Dario Linares. Well, it's been a couple of weeks where I've been kind of getting back to basics, I suppose, in terms of reckoning with podcasting as a medium, podcast studies, and where do I fit as a producer and consumer, uh, particularly in the context of, of being an academic and the kind of, the kind of podcast that, that I actually make. So last week I was part of a podcast panel arranged by the team behind our partners at the Spoken Web podcast, namely the Canadian poet and sound professor Jason Camlot and PhD researcher Stacey Copeland. And the panel was hosted by Concordia University in Canada and I was really sort of delighted and uh, honoured to be asked to kind of set the stage for that talk with an opening 15-minute speech The event itself was entitled Podcasting as a Field of Critical Study, and it used the Podcasting New Oral Cultures and Digital Media book as a departure point. And it was a really informative, useful event, I found, with speakers who are all researching podcasting from various perspectives and using very different methodologies, and also having quite different aims, I think, in terms of how they see the importance of podcast studies as a discipline. So Eleanor Razlagova is a professor in in the history of radio and she was really interesting, I thought, on placing podcasting into the context of radio, um, which is obviously something that is fundamental to podcast studies and indeed it's something that we, we commented on in the book quite extensively. But interesting how that maybe has shifted direction or I get the sense that, that people who are working in podcasting are not so much reliant on grounding studies in the relationship between podcasting and radio maybe I'm I'm, you know there's plenty of people who are doing doing that still but I think there is a sort of movement forward in the last few years with regards to that but I thought she was particularly good on looking at the relationship between pirate radio and its relationship to podcasting sort of forwarding that potential as a direction of research I thought was really really interesting back in the day I used to to listen to uh, pirate radio you know kind of uh, way past my bedtime on the long wave radio and it wasn't until really years later that, that I understood the the significance of that and the way that it offered a counterpoint to the the traditions of uh, BBC broadcasting which obviously is is quite similar, I think, to the way that podcasting kind of sets itself up as being, or has historically sort of set itself up as being anti or or as a counterpoint to to what we consider traditional broadcasting. As I'll come to, maybe that's uh, that's changing now. Also on the podcast was a, a previous guest on this show, Kim Fox, and her article, "A Curriculum for Blackness," is really an important text for understanding how podcasts can interrogate cultural identity. And she always makes me think about the importance of um, podcasting as a space for non-normative identities and actually asking what that means in practice. It's okay sort of suggesting that podcasting is this democratic space that, that champions equality and diversity. But what does that actually mean in principle and how how should podcast producers and podcast academics, indeed podcast studies as a, as a discipline, actually forward that as an agenda? And even talking about the idea of contesting the notion of a podcasting canon before 
there actually is really a, a canon of, of, of texts. And, and again, we got into the dis- discussion of the idea of, is there a canonical set of podcasts already? And what would those look like? And how do we make sure it's not the usual suspects that are referred to and analysed time and time again? And, and Hannah, who was Hannah McGregor, again, another previous guest on the show, who is someone who is you know as insightful as anybody out there i think on on podcasting and podcast studies was sort of thinking through this this sense of what are we talking about when we when we think about canons in podcasting are we talking about the podcasts themselves or the the literature that analyzes podcasting and we should be really mindful about the depth and breadth of the text that we that we actually analyze if we are interested in encapsulating what podcasting can do and then two scholars I've met for the first time, Michael O'Driscoll and Diana Fong, they were talking about uh, podcasting in terms of thinking about the ethics of listening. And it made me think about my own position as both uh, a producer and a listener. So that sense of how I'm actually editing a podcast. And it brought me right back to some of the early things I was thinking about when I first started podcasting, that idea of shaping sound and shaping knowledge and shaping one's own voice as well as the voices of people that that you are interviewing or you are having a conversation with. So it sort of triggered this really important facet, I think, of of podcast studies, which for me has, has provoked a kind of new self-reflexivity as an academic. And you know, I always go back to this phrase that I used in the book was, what does it mean to be a mediating and mediated subject? And I think coming from somebody who was just a theorist, really, in film, and I'd never really utilized practice to understand or to think through the way that I was applying theory. That is what podcasting, I think, has given me as, a, as an academic scholar. But I think the first respondent to the opening remarks that I gave Stacy, Stacy Copeland, she really reminded me why we were so enthralled to podcasting, I think, when we first really realized what impact it was having, particularly me and Neil when we were doing The Cinematologist, but then we, when Richard joined us in terms of the editing of the book. And that sense of podcasting as an, an, idealized, an idealized process that was actually making us think about the the world and making us think about how we present ourselves and how we communicate and how we are communicated to in a in a broader scope it was almost like returning to that enthusiasm of being a phd student and she quoted her her favorite line or the or the line she said stuck with her from from the introduction to the book which is that podcasting is infused with the excitement possibility certainly the few years since the book has come out the notion that podcast studies can be considered a specific discrete discipline has been bolstered by the range of analysis of podcasts as a sound artifact and of course the increasing focus on podcasting as an industry and a cultural phenomena along of course with the use of podcasts as a research tool and a dissemination medium i think all of these strands were the things that i was trying to point to in my opening remarks and that sense of of reckoning with what podcast studies is trying to do is perhaps the next phase, I think, in terms of the discipline moving on from simply from simply trying to nail down what podcasting is and then make that differentiation between other media, particularly radio and maybe even um, blogging, because I know of, there are many, many scholars out there that, that have used that correlation between the early days of blogging with um, 
the way that podcasting has been utilized in its in its early development. So it was great to see that the the influence of the book and this podcast is still ongoing. Yeah, that that look at the introduction again and the elements that myself and Neil and Richard were thinking about and even the the driving force behind this podcast which I'm currently kind of in the phase of rethinking what this podcast can do or needs to do going forward. I think when we come to this the end of this season in the summer I'm going to take a little bit of a break and have a think about what I want to do here in relationship to promoting the the idea of a podcast studies whether these monologues work for a start, whether I think maybe a, a, a new co-presenter would, would help along along those lines, even renaming the uh, the podcast. And then, of course, this sort of rethinking about where podcasting is as a medium and how it has moved on somewhat in the last three years. Yeah, somewhat in the last three years, even though my interests in the subject my focus on on why I think it's important and why it's important to me has ostensibly um, stayed pretty much the same. Has been the news that has emerged in the last week, week and a half, I suppose, about, again, significant changes in the infrastructure of the podcast industry in, in scare quotes, which itself has opened up questions as to whether the shifting industrial context and you know, overarching sort of infrastructure about the way that podcasting is understood and delivered and organized has led me to, you know, re-ask that question. Has podcasting now more or less come to the point where it's been incorporated into what you might call a mainstream economic logic? If you are listening to this, you'll undoubtedly be aware that both Spotify and Apple Podcasts have pushed forward the the platformization process to a potentially new phase. We covered this quite a bit in the episode we did from the Association of Internet Researchers um, a few months back. And I've also linked to a few articles that cover what Spotify and Apple have recently announced. So the basic news is that both Spotify and Apple will now be offering subscription-based models structured around premium content and channels. And I kind of expected this with Spotify. We've talked about this an awful lot in in various episodes. But to me, the most significant is the Apple move. This is because one could argue that the idiosyncratic architecture of iTunes when it was first released, which of course was driven by Apple's ethos of monetizing hardware rather than worrying so much about content, actually created the open marketplace of creative audio content that allowed podcasting to become the phenomena, the medium that it has become in the way that it has become. So in turn, this allowed for the creative potential for podcasting to develop in its early phases, unencumbered by economic considerations, and let's face it, largely invisible to the mainstream. So, you know, it's really paradoxical that within this huge corporate environment of Apple, that there remained this unsurveillanced, uncensored, uncontrolled creative audio space. The diversity and almost sort of experimental ideas explosion around around audio content that that emerged, I think, and, and actually sort of percolated for a number of years because if you think about it in 2004, 2005, in the first few years, there was a real sort of explosion of podcasting being 
being of interest as a new medium. And then there was a really sort of slow burn development of podcasting. And then, you know, again, a sort of movement forward in, in 2011, 2012, as the iTunes architecture actually changed to allow podcasting to have its own title, which again was an important moment. And then in, in 2014 and 2015, you know, as, as many of you know, is considered this sort of crossover moment with the ubiquity of the smartphone and the Apple app alongside the cultural phenomenon of serial. Now, again, you know, I'm sure many of you might contest the, the sort of linear progression of that narrative. But for Apple to actually now decide that it's going to ring fence certain levels of content, I think is a is almost a sort of fundamental change in the very nature of how we've understood podcasting to this point. The outcome could be really the nail in the coffin to the open source, everything is available everywhere ethos to podcasting. And the other big news that kind of followed on the back of that was that Sirius SM have acquired what many consider to be a benchmark of independent podcasting, which is the 99% Invisible podcast, which the creator of which, Roman Mars, was also the co-founder of Radiotopia. And as one of our previous guests on the show, Galen Beebe, highlighted in the recent Bellow Collective newsletter, there's been a lot of varied reaction to this, but Galen puts those reactions into two main strands. And she says, and I quote, perhaps it signals that indie creators can have a viable exit strategy for managing the business end while they continue to focus on their craft. That's the take Mars offered to the New York Times. Or perhaps it means indie podcasting is on its way out with all your favorite scrappy shows doomed to sell out to the man or wither away. So for me, it furthers this notion that that we are now in a two-tier system for podcasting production that will undoubtedly affect both the the possibilities for independence to gain a sense of, of visibility and audience that in the beautiful days of podcasting's adolescence where there was this flattening between the major producers and and any independent who wanted to put their their work out there I think those days are ostensibly coming to an end. And it's an interesting question, I think, for indie podcasters in relationship to um, that age-old question of art versus commerce. Are indie podcasters now just looking for an avenue through which they could get picked up by Spotify or or Apple or even the BBC or any of the other kind of recognised broadcast names which would best offer them support but at worst may curtail their artistic freedom and what what does that mean for kind of what does that mean for the sense of podcasting as a form does it mean that it becomes more incorporated into mainstream sensibilities and becomes more formulaic and in turn it becomes more difficult to really find the you know the more experimental idiosyncratic kinds of shows which is the driver for innovation, I think, in, you know, if you think of, about the way that any any art form works. From an academic standpoint, these are interesting questions from a media studies and political economy standpoint. For me, as an academic podcaster, and though there can be a lot of crossover, I think actually academic podcasting is not quite the same as independent commercial podcasting. In fact, I'm sure it's not. And I suppose the question for myself will be, will this make it even more difficult for academic podcasts to reach beyond a very narrow, limited, academically engaged and aware audience? 
you know, particularly if if the big companies are overwhelming the ecosystem with, with in a content sense, but also with the idea of what constitutes a, a, a quality or a good podcast. And I think, you know, one of the critiques right now is that there is an awful lot of celebrity podcasts out, out there that are essentially talking about being celebrities. Of course, even though this will never be me, I don't think that, that I would fit into this category. It's good for the medium in general if there is a pathway to success for smaller productions that doesn't involve having to simply sell out to corporate oversight. So if there is a way that there is a discovery of 100% independent podcasts to find an audience, I hope that remains the case, but I'm in increasingly sceptical. It seems to me that, that podcasting now is, again, in scare quotes, maturing very, very quickly to the point where behemoth titles and names may end up sucking up all of the, the oxygen of both the advertising models and then the, the podcast charts, of course, but also the cultural conversation that, that is out there. And it's, it, I think, again, it's incumbent on podcast studies that we make sure that we are focusing on a range of titles, but also a range of ideas and a range of challenge and a range of critiques in terms of what podcasting is, where po podcasting is going in terms of the industrial and the infrastructural developments, but also really trying to find those areas where podcasting is doing something new. And that's not to say that we shouldn't be focusing on the most popular shows. Of course, I think that that, that is part of the equation. Maybe I'm being naive and overly romantic, but it really will be sad to see the days gone where there is that excitement of possibility has kind of been negated for those who consider them themselves outside simply um, trying to get huge audiences and monetize those audiences. Okay, before I get into the today's interview, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that we have a new website and I want to thank my colleague and, and guest presenter Laurie Beckstead for pointing me to the, the software um, pod page and I just wanted to give a little plug for it and this is completely un, unpaid or unsolicited so pod page if you're out there and you want to uh, you want to give us a little sponsorship then please uh, get in touch I hadn't actually heard of it and I've, I'd often been thinking about whether we needed a, a an actual website for new oral cultures I think it was going to be warranted particularly because anchor the hosting site that we use is great in so many ways however the problem with it is that the show notes and the versatility of the extras that you can put on there when it comes to setting up what it looks like is quite limited. But I didn't want to engage in the labor of designing and building a whole other website on the side. Um, and I, didn't, I just didn't have the time so far. But then Laurie pointed me to this software, which she told me, you know, would automatically take all of the data, all of the copy and images from your iTunes podcast metadata and convert it into a website. So I looked it up and I actually did it. It didn't take very, very long at all. And, you know, it really has created a pretty slick and functional web page. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be adding to that and, and kind of refining it and making it as usable as I can. But I was just so surprised that once you've made your initial template choices, it's more or less up and running. So the link to the website is on is on the show notes, and I'll be sharing it on social media. Obviously, when I when I share this episode on uh, on my networks on on Twitter and on on Facebook and and all of that stuff. Um, 
And just on that as well, if you enjoy the show and you you think it's worthwhile and it's contributing to your understanding of podcasting or, you know, you're using it in teaching or even you want to reference any of it in your research, you know, we love it when that happens. But also, we're totally independent and totally free, but we would like to reach a larger audience. So if you do enjoy the episodes and you find them useful, please share them on your social networks. We really love a shout out. If you could give us a review on your podcast app of choice, particularly obviously if you're using Apple Podcasts, but also on sites like Podchaser. And even if you want to leave us a review on the um, new website, on the Podpage website, there is a facility to do that. So please, and also with Anchor, you can actually leave a an audio message. And if anybody does leave any audio comments on any of the, the subjects that come up on New Oral Cultures, I'd be delighted to play them and comment on, on them on the show. Okay, so let's get into the main portion of today's show. This week's interview was with a PhD student from the University of Paris, Ella Waldman. And it focused on an article she had recently um, written and was published through the Journal of Anglophone Literature, Culture and Media. And the piece was entitled From Storytelling to Story Listening, How the Hit Podcast S-Town Reconfigured the Production and Reception of Narrative Nonfiction. So it was a really interesting discussion about the literary influences on S-Town and how how she has understood podcasting has been influenced by literary history, liter- literary functions, literary devices. It showed, again, the diversity of podcast studies in, in terms of the way that researchers are looking at podcasting, not simply as an influence from, from radio, but sitting in this space where it's drawing on so many different kind of media and artistic influences in the way that it, it, it is produced, but also in the way that, that producers, particularly in this, in this article, understand what they're trying to do with the medium. So we talked for about 40 minutes or so. It's a really insightful and interesting conversation. We hope you enjoy it. So this is me talking to Ella Waldman. So I'm joined by Ella Waldman, PhD student from the University of Paris, who has written this fantastic piece on uh, S-Town. Welcome, Ella. How are things going? You all right? Thank you. Yeah, I'm all right. <laughs> I'm just wondering, straight off the bat, whether we can, whether we should call it S Town or Shit Town. Let's call it because, uh, Shit Town. <laughs> <laughs> because it's interesting. I think the S the S Town part is just for the marketing, isn't it, in the US that they couldn't. Yeah. You know, they didn't want to say the word shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I realized um, it's sort of the name S Town tended to stick, and everyone says S Town, but it's actually Shit Town. <laughs> Is it the FEC? Is that getting the right acronym there? Who's you know? It's it's on that list of words that nobody can say. Probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's because we tend to think of uh, we tend to think of podcasting as having these crossing all of these boundaries and having no censorship, but it really it leaks in in right. in, in, in other areas. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's great to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this for a while because I really liked S Town when it when it first came out, and I think it does do some really interesting things on the back of 
you know, the the NPR, This American Life and Serial sort of template, but goes in different directions. But let's talk about yourself. So you've been doing your PhD for a, a few years now. And um, obviously, we've all been struggling with the with the lockdown. And uh, yeah, just w- what kind of phase are you at? And how have you found it over the last year? Is it, has it made things a lot more difficult? What's your situation been? So yeah, it's been a year now since the the lockdown in, in in France. So with hindsight, I'd say that it's been a very strange year, of course, uh, a mix of frustration, frustration for not being able to teach as I would like, as I would have liked to, to travel at the early stages of, um, of my career in research, not being able to, you know, attend the conferences that I was supposed to participate in. But then at the same time, I also felt lucky and privileged to work on podcasts and not on, you know, I have some colleagues in the same department, they're working on manuscripts, they need to do archival research to work in archives. And uh, this is, I mean, for them, it's really been, it's really put a halt in all of this. Um, well, I'm able to, you know, continue my research. And it's also created new opportunities. Uh, I've met many colleagues uh, and fellow young researchers also in the field of podcast studies joined uh, a group that's called the um, podcast phds um, all right is that in france or is that a, is that an international group it's an international group so we're um from all over the world i mean it's it would have been much much more difficult of course to um to gather physically and so just to be able to meet regularly with them is is a great thing great and in in the group because i know we've got the there's an early careers group with what's part of the pod academics group mm-hmm. as well i'm always it's interesting to me to to understand where the background of students who are coming in and doing postgraduate work in in podcasting and what the the main tenor of that is because obviously there's part of it that might come from a kind of technical or radio studies background. It's like, what's the development of that? There's other parts of it, I think, that are much more kind of media and cultural studies and about the transfer of information, let's say, or, or information communication in, in the sort of digital era, that, that kind of stuff. And then there's other people who are kind of just more interested in content and what is this saying about culture and uh, race and gender and class. But you're you're more of a literature background, is that is that right? And I know that there are literature programs and literary studies is now starting to take on this sort of challenge of what writing is beyond the text and starting to think a lot more about sound in that in that context exactly exactly yes i uh my background is uh very much in literary studies english studies what's called english studies in france which encompasses english-speaking literature but also history culture um even, I mean, language, grammar, linguistics, translation. So I have a master's in um, English studies from the University of Paris. And then I have another master's in public affairs that I I graduated from uh, Sciences Po Paris, which is the equivalent of, uh, you could say, of the LSE, uh, broadly speaking. And so just, I mean, because it's interesting, it's also, it, it shows how I got to uh, podcasts and, <laughs> and, and to researching podcasts. Sure. Uh, at first, I wanted to to work in cultural diplomacy. Right. Oh, like a real job then. <laughs> yes, a real job, exactly. 
<laughs> and so I did some internships in cultural services of um, French embassies and consulates in, in the US. I had a first position, an actual first job at the French consulate in Toronto. And uh, I spent a year there in Canada. This was 2014, 2015. And this is where I first, where I actually first listened to podcasts. Right. So I was living in a, in, a, in a foreign country. I felt a bit homesick, of course. And I kept listening to French radio, to replay French radio. And then one of my colleagues actually at the consulate introduced me to Serial, which came out that same year. And so I was uh, listening to Serial avidly <laughs> on my, on, actually on my way to, to work. This was the case for many listeners, but it really knocked me off my feet, literally. I mean, I was, uh, I remember listening to the show every morning while I was, you know, walking to the subway. But at the time I didn't, I wasn't, I mean, I didn't think of it as a, as a research subject at all. I mean, it was pure, you know, entertainment, you could say. And then I moved back to Paris and I realized that um, I had missed studying, I had missed doing research and missed literature studies, etc. So I decided to take an exam that's called uh, Aggregation in France, which is a, a highly competitive exam that basically um, allows you to become a, a high school teacher at high school level and to get into a PhD is sort of a prerequisite to, um, to start a, a PhD. And that was a very, very intense year preparation for this exam with a very dense curriculum. And I realized that um, in, my, in my spare time, in my off time, uh, I could only bring myself to read nonfiction pieces, short nonfiction pieces. So I would read, you know, articles from the New Yorker, etc. And at one point, I realized that I couldn't just read at all anymore. I was just too tired and exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and I was preparing the, the orals. There's an, a part where you have oral exams. And so I just couldn't read anymore. And this is when I remembered my time in, in Toronto listening to Serial. <laughs> and this was March 2017, which was also the, the uh, release date of uh, S-Town. And so I tuned into S-Town. And so I remember spending seven hours in my mother's kitchen listening to, to S-Town and once again being completely stunned uh, by the um, just the power of, uh, of that storytelling and how. And so I decided to apply for it. When I decided to apply for a PhD, I decided to center my, my, my project around S-Town as a, as a sort of starting point uh, for, my, for my PhD thesis. And then I got into the, the PhD program at University of Paris um, and a fun fact is that at the same time as I entered the PhD program, my son was born, uh, who's now two and a half years old. So he's exactly as old as my <laughs> PhD. And so I spent some time uh, when he was just a few weeks old, actually listening, re-listening to s Sound just to, you know, which is, I mean, it's funny because since podcasts are a hand-free medium, I was able to, you know, listen to S-Town while rocking him in my arms and trying to, you know, get him back to sleep. So he's probably heard Brian Reed's voice uh, in his very early days. So that's... <laughs> I don't know whether you sort of hold any store by, what is it, is it Pav Pavlovian influencing or yeah. something like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, I was just, just before we sort of speak directly about... Um, 
you know, podcasts and literature and the crossover. Is there, what's the culture is the right word of um, podcasts in France? Because, you know, we talk a lot about in the UK and, and I think generally in podcasting, the, there is this sort of feeling that the type of podcasting that comes out of a country is related to its media structure. So, you know, the way that the BBC does things and the way that NPR does things just fundamentally underpins the culture of podcasting in those countries. Is it kind of similar in France, would you say? To a certain extent, yes. Uh, obviously, uh, Radio France, which is the, 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 the main radio institution in France, has a very strong identity. There are many platforms now uh, that are trying to or that are actually producing podcasts in France and there's a very very dynamic scene for po- podcasting in, in in France as well but I'm I'm really interested in in this um, you know comparison between the two scenes between the uh, American uh, North American and French scenes because there are really two, you, I mean, there, there are really two currents, two uh, strands. And when I try to explain to French radio or podcast listeners what exactly um, I'm working on, what the object is I'm working on, I find it difficult to, I mean, to explain and to define. But uh, yes, no, there are, there, are, there are very, I mean, there's a lot of interesting new uh, developments in, in France as well for podcasting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's probably something that's understudied in terms of the relationship between podcasting as a international and a national kind mm-hmm. of media artifact, really. You know, and yes. you know, because we, you know, what we're like as English speakers, it's just like, yeah, English is just everywhere, and that's what everybody does. But I think you know, if you if you listen to a lot of or read a lot of writers or listen to people talk about South America or even now and you know in Korea which is a huge market for podcasts, yeah. there's definitely a kind of sense in which it's being used to specifically for audiences that are, are national or, or regional, you know what I mean? That however you want to kind of define that. So I think it's mm-hmm. it's kind of short-sighted, isn't it? Sort of thinking about, oh, it's just this globalized medium that everybody listens to in the same way. But then, I mean, the the American scene influences the French scene as well and probably sure. the Spanish scene, um, thinking of uh, Radio Ambulante or mm. in, in France, um, Les Pieds sur Terre, which is directly influenced by um, this American life. I mean, there are connections. So when you're first going into the, the PhD program then, and you, you know, you're wanting to study S-Town, and clearly you're wanting to study S-Town as a literary object, but then you have to kind of demarcate what that actually means in relationship to radio and media and all of these, all of these kinds of things. So what, what's kind of like the starting point in being able to mark out what how your approach to podcasting is going to go forward well when i started with the first readings i did uh, i realized that um a lot had been written of course on the links between radio and literature be it audio drama hörspiel in in, in germany france has a great a, a very long tradition of literary adaptation as well for for the radio and with this sort of predominant idea, especially in, in the English-speaking world, that um, the gold, what is referred to as the golden age of radio was also a golden age for literature on air or literature and radio, um, with the sense that the modernist, what is referred to again as the modernist period in the 1930s, 1940s, uh, was really the, the high point, the apex for literary experimentation uh, on the radio, uh, the most fertile period for collaboration between 
authors, poets, playwrights on the one hand and producers, composers, radio artists on the other. And I had a feeling that these uh, authors or scholars tended to look down on everything that uh, would be produced um, afterwards, later on, and that I would everything would you know, go downhill from there, um, that um, the radio was no longer a space for production of innovative, complex, rich material anymore. And I felt that there was a sort of gap there, or, or a blind spot, at least, um, in, in the research. And the blind spot there was that literature and literary creation tended to be defined as limited to fiction, to poetry and, and, and drama. Uh, and I felt that by including documentary forms, um, non-fiction, uh, it was obvious that radio was still a, a creative and productive uh, space, a, a space for creation and uh, experimentation as well. And as a medium, it's, as a specific medium, I felt that podcasting was also sort of the underestimated parent of, of that equation, um, that the specificity of the medium needed to be acknowledged in in relation to its effect on on literature as well yeah no I, I, one of the things that comes out of out of that i i think that i always try to think about where why podcasting is unique is it unique and what is it doing and i think within literature there's a really interesting potential bridging effect if i can use that phrase maybe maybe that's not the right one but you know what i mean and again, you tell me. You tell me if this is right in, in terms of the the context of literature, literary criticism as a discipline. So, when you're dealing with poetry, or you're dealing with theatre, you know, writing plays, or you deal with writing music, even, and the same is for script scripts in film. If you wanted to talk about the voice or the performance element of those literary objects, that would fall into then performance studies, or would go into other areas. And therefore, that's why literary criticism, literary studies is often couched within or, or focused much more on the fictional novel, because the idea is there's the voice that's in your head. But what podcasting does is it kind of gets in between those two positions. Do you know what I mean? Because it's especially if you're saying that podcasting is a literary artifact, because it is in the performance it is in the voice that something actually occurs and then you have to start to think about that idea of text on its own is not the end point of of the novel when it comes to meaning and and all the other things that it could be exactly it it literalizes uh the uh, the notion of voice the notion of uh the literary notion of voice exactly it's um it's as simple as that <laughs> yeah when an antique clock breaks a clock that's been telling time for 200 or 300 years. Fixing it can be a real puzzle. An old clock like that was handmade by someone. It might take away the time with a pendulum, with a spring, with a pulley system. It might have bells that are supposed to strike the hour, or a bird that's meant to pop out and cuckoo at you. There can be hundreds of tiny individual pieces, each of which needs to interact with the others precisely. To make the job even trickier, you often can't tell what's been done to a clock over hundreds of years. Maybe there's damage that was never fixed, or fixed badly. Sometimes entire portions of the original clockwork are missing, but you can't know for sure because there are rarely diagrams of what the clock's supposed to look like. A clock that old doesn't come with a manual. So instead, the few people left in the world who know how to do this kind of thing rely on what are often called witness marks to guide their way. A witness mark could be a small dent, a hole that once held a screw. 
These are actual impressions and outlines and discolorations left inside the clock of pieces that might have once been there. They're clues to what was in the clockmaker's mind when he first created the thing. I'm told fixing an old clock can be maddening. You're constantly wondering if you've just spent hours going down a path that will likely take you nowhere, and all you've got are these vague witness marks, which might not even mean what you think they mean. So at every moment along the way, you have to decide if you're wasting your time or not. Anyway, I only learned about all this because years ago, an antique clock restorer contacted me and asked me to help him solve a murder. Something's happened. Something has absolutely happened in this town. There's just too much little crap for something not to have happened. And I'm about had enough of shit town and the things that goes on. From Serial and This American Life, I'm Brian Reed. S-Town, coming March 28th. Ah, you're you're beginning to figure it out now, aren't you? When it comes to something like S-Town then, because... It, it's definitely not an audio book. And, you know, we can talk about that, which is, a, again, it's how adjacent it is to podcasting is one thing. But um, it does employ so many kinds of techniques of storytelling that are using sound and are using the voice, but also do have their connections within devices, within writing, um, for want of a better word. But maybe maybe you could just give us, very quickly, maybe you could just give us a sort of S-Town Pressy, maybe after that sort of why, particularly just as a listener, you were so so engrossed in it. So S Town is um, is a seven part, uh, roughly seven hour long podcast that was produced by Serial and um, This American Life, two producers Brian Reed and Julie Snyder, and so it tells the true story of um, Brian Reed, uh, Brian Reed's encounter with a man called John B. Macklemore, a man who um, lives in a in a in a very small town uh, in Alabama, and uh, Macklemore contacts uh, Reed uh, in a very sort of typical this American life way uh, to tell him about uh, a story that he would like Reed to uh, investigate. And so, what interests Reed more than the alleged an alleged case of, of murder, of covered up crime and corruption is actually personality. In his email, in his first email, he, he has the vitriolic description of um, the of his hometown as shit town, which gives its uh, name to, to the podcast. Uh, and so Reed grows more and more intrigued by this character, really. Um, he... Macklemore restores antique clocks. Uh, he lives uh, with, still lives with his 90-year-old mother on a huge estate with dozens of dogs. Uh, he had a, a, a gigantic hedge maze built on his estate, um, and he he hates his hometown. He hates. I mean, he hates his environment, and he says so. He expresses it in very long rants. But he never resolved to, to, to leave the place. So, and this is going to be a spoiler, <laughs> a few weeks after Reed uh, meets him for the first time and the podcast is still in production, Macklemore commits suicide. So um, Reed instead decides to devote 
the podcast and his story to uh, this man, to uh, the story of his life, the mysteries that surround his life uh, and why he decided uh, to, to end it, uh, generally speaking. So it was released as a, a finite product, uh, seven episodes uh, called Chapters that were released simultaneously. That's actually been talked about as being quite important. I mean, Reed's mentioned it himself. And I, th I think I'm right in saying that this is the first podcast that didn't drop one after another in the serial format, you know, because we always make that connection between podcasting and serial. And it seems that that, that, that overarching distribution uh, technique or, or the, the way of just dropping it all in one go is seems to have been both effective but also intended that way. Yeah, I, I, I found out that it was the first one to do that, the first podcast to do that, and that it was very uh, a very explicit, you could say, a way of um, branding itself as something akin to a novel. Reed and, and Snyder, um, when they were in production, were referred to their production as uh, a nonfiction audio novel and really had that uh, model in mind. So in its form, in its structure, it's extremely uh, almost too <laughs> novelistic. And it's, I mean, it's very explicitly modeled after a novel. And then... Um, in its themes as well, and in its in the I mean in the very contents of of the podcast, it's completely pervaded with intertextual references, metatextual references. It's a I I called it a hyper literary podcast because it's almost uh, conspicuously <laughs> presented as literary. So obviously the the, the critics fell for it <laughs> at that time. I'm not sure if podcast criticism was already as established as it is now. So I guess it's also people who tended to be more of literary critics or film critics who covered the, the, the show and who were absolutely seduced by the novelistic nature of, of the show. They, and so all of the reviews stated that used it as an argument for you know for its quality to praise its quality to say how how good it was do you think that this is a sort of an example of of the ways in which the, the relationship between our old and new media always has this kind of on the one hand attention in the fact that the new is replacing the old so the new is always sort of better and more interesting and doing doing sort of avant-garde things, even if it might not be. But then also the new always suffers from this idea that it, it doesn't have the highbrow quality underpinning to it. And do you think that S-Town sort of represents that move, maybe not intentionally by anybody, but, you know, that sort of sense of a medium trying to search for its credentials or that, you know, this is grounded in this thing that we all recognize as, as having a long history in terms of, of, of storytelling? Definitely, yeah. When... Um... S-Town actually won uh, a Peabody Award. And the award speech um, said that um, uh, the, the podcast was breaking new grounds with its novelistic form and structure or something like that. And I thought it was interesting that in order to praise how innovative and, and revolutionary uh, and new this podcast was, they were referring to the, the more established, you know, standard of, uh, <laughs> of, of the novel, which felt paradoxical, paradoxical yeah, right yeah, yeah. yeah but then at the same time uh, if we take it from a different perspective and and of course this is um this this goes in line with um questions of remediation the fact that 
uh, new media tend to uh, recuperate older forms and remediate them, refashion them, etc. Uh, nothing absolutely new is ever created, etc. And also at the same time, if we take it from another perspective, if we think of S-Town as a literary object or as a novel, I think it's interesting insofar as it challenges the very definition of what a novel is and what literature is or what what it means to for something to be literary, right? So it's not uh, necessarily, yes, a conservative move here. And I think also it... Again, the pr- problem with that, or one way to look at that with a critical eye, that sense of, oh, we're going back to the accepted novelistic structures and depth because that is going to retain or, or create a real highbrow engagement. But really, in, in, in a sense, and this happens a lot now with, with the way that audio is starting to be conceived of, I think that it's even moving us back to earlier times when, when the focus of storytelling was on oral traditions. And... I'm just wondering, I mean, you talk about this idea of story listening and in Reed's interviews, he did this interview on the Long Form Podcast where he starts to talk a little bit about this idea of having the mindset of a novel when you're listening. I'm just wondering whether you think that S-Town and then maybe the way that podcasts are starting to be produced now is changing the way and the expectation of how we understand what listening is away from radio and and back to kind of more novelistic structures, if that's not too convoluted a question. Mm. Well, what it certainly does, what podcasts certainly do is bring a new scope, I think, to narratives uh, and introduce a new temporality that are closer, yes, to uh, the ones uh, that we're used to with, uh, with novels. And you're right, it's, it's also a way of pointing to something that's much older and that predates text, which is, um, of course, oral storytelling, yes. What's interesting in, in S-Town is how, how many storytellers there are in, in, the, in the story. Of course, Brian Reed, host and narrator of uh, the podcast, you could say, is the overarching framing voice that you'll hear. But then there's, of course, John B. Macklemore, who is a natural storyteller as well. Some called him poetic genius with really virtuosic, uh, you know, virtuosic use of, of language, etc. And then there are other characters as well. Uh, Once he got in touch at 1.30 in the morning because a bunch of cops had been in his yard. And I had the Praetorian class cowering behind that uniform. It felt as if by sheer force of will, John was opening this portal between us and calling out through it, calling from his world, a world of proleptic decay and decrepitude. Say people as well in the in the podcast who are storytellers and the the reporter, the narrator turns simply into a listener, into someone who receives, records those stories uh, and of course ultimately shapes them into 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 a coherent narrative but i think it's it's really beautiful to have to have these people to to hear these people and to have to be able to hear their voices i mean one of the interesting things about the show and there's this gentleman whose name i never do catch who tells me quote i'm so fucking fat i don't care no more and lifts up his shirt to show me the giant words he has tattooed on his stomach feed me. <laughs> tell him, tell him, give him a picture. I'm a six foot, 350 pound bearded man in a John Deere hat would feed me on my belly. Just so y'all get a clear picture here. There's a guy who's been wearing the same trucker hat for seven years. Seven years. 
Same hat. Then there's this guy. People call him Razor. Beep, beep, and back it up. I was parked on the side of the road. If I looked down there, I said, son of a bitch, he really breaks up. Yeah, Walter Odom come by, man, seen him laying in the yard, thought he died. Yeah, ambulance is already, they already caught the ambulance, man. Bastards laying out there in the yard, got an ounce of pot laying beside him, six beers. He's just shit-faced. <laughs> I believe he's yeah. telling a story about his friend Willard, who is impervious to death. You know, I run over him three times in one fucking night. So we, we've talked a lot about literary devices, and then we, we can talk about kind of chopping up the narrative and where the, the, the foregrounding and foreshadowing and the, the idea that, that I think Brian Reed, what he does a lot of is talk about things that are going to happen in the future. But, but in a sense, that goes against that kind of in-time sense that the radio narration, I think, has. So I'm just wondering, you know, what are the sort of key elements in terms of the way that, that sound is being used in, a, in interesting ways to, to create the storytelling? It's interesting because in the um, in the reviews and in the critics of of the show, the emphasis was on how, again how literary, how novelistic S Town was, but it was uh, mostly concerned with elements of subtext or intertext, and it didn't really go into into sound uh, and how sound also shapes the narrative. So I was interested in a, in a recent uh, approach to that, which is um, audio narratology, which takes into account elements such as sound effects, voice, uh, music, as ways of structuring and shaping a narrative and shaping the audience's understanding of the narrative. And I felt that in the case of S-Town, Music was, of course, um, extremely important. One example that I developed in in my article was uh, the use of original music, how opera was at times uh, used as a background for Reed's voice. Yeah, there's a great example where he goes off on a massive diatribe of expletives about about the town. And I think, you know, is it the town or America? But then you've got the underscoring of the opera that kind of amplifies that. We ain't nothing but a nation of God damn chicken shit, horse shit, tattletale, pissy ass, whiny, fat, flabby, out of shape, Facebook looking, damn twerk fest, peeking out the windows and slipping around, listening on the cell phones and spying in the peephole and peeping in the crack of the goddamn door and listening in the fucking sheetrock. Yeah, Mr. Putin, please show some fucking mercy. I mean, come on, drop a fucking bomb, won't you? Exactly. Yes, it's it's both a form of punctuation, uh, of emphasizing something, uh, almost as if you would underline something. But then at the same time, it's also a new element of, of meaning and it creates other meanings. So in this case, in this very specific case, there was this comparison between uh, the opera singer's uh, virtuosity and uh, Macklemore's virtuous use of, of, of language. So... Um, it's uh, it's not enough to think of music and sound as simply an element of punctuation or of decoration, or it can really create meaning as well. In terms of again of the sort of narratological elements, that relationship between the narrator or the storyteller as the producer of the show, Reed, and then and Macklemore, and their interrelationship is really important, isn't it? And I wonder if. The show was not not maybe learning lessons from what happened with Serial, but trying to sort of make a comment on the ethics of the relationship between subject and object in, in that way. Because obviously that with Serial, there were concerns about the journalistic ethics and stuff. And we do get moments in this where Reed is talking about himself 
and his own reactions to things as as well, especially after the the death of of, of Moore. Yes, I think it's much more uh, self reflexive and meta in a way than uh, than than serial. Even though serial already had elements of uh, meta textuality, or but yes, it's it's really worried about. I guess was really worried about showcasing showing the production process behind the scenes, bringing us behind the scenes in order to compensate for the ethical problems that you can think of in the sphere of literary journalism and audio literary journalism. So yes, trying to be as honest as possible about um, the conditions of production and trying to also challenge and undermine the the illusion of objectivity, the illusion of, or the, the ideal of objectivity, which can never be attained, of course, and always emphasizing the importance of his presence in, in, in the production process, in the interview as well, that he has a sort of cast shadow on uh, on what he's reporting on. It's really interesting, I think, that the way that, that podcasting is dealing with, with that if we compare it to say the the 60s and the 70s in the era of new new journalism for example so obviously you have a time there where there is a sort of distrust of um agenda setting narratives and and institutions that that give us news right and you could argue that there's a parallel moment going on now but it's different i think it's it's almost as if where instead of saying here is the the institutions that we distrust and we're going to tell the real story and I'm going to put myself in that real story so that there's a sense of advocacy there, which is, I think, what, and, and also an acknowledgement that you do influence, that you do influence events if you're there as a reporter, right? But I think now it's, it's similar in some ways, but in other ways, it's more about pinpointing the avenues of different truths and different possibilities that are going on all the time. And it's, on the one hand, that's, that's really interesting and, and really great. Also, we're really struggling to over the battle of of truth and knowledge and and, and information and all, all of that kind of thing. So I don't know whether you've got a sort of general sense of where S Town or podcasting sits within that that question. Well, I think that the the, the hyper literariness that I was referring to, the sort of novelistic turn that um, S Town is taking, is is really pointing at that, at pointing at the assumption that everything is a construct, that nothing is, that there's, there's no absolute truth, things that, I mean, we're now familiar with. I think it's proposing a, a sort of new third way um, where it's literary nonfiction, but it's oral literary nonfiction. Um, so by introducing the, the the medium of sound and by introducing the very um, specific medium of um, podcasting, it's um, it's adding to to the debate here. You know, when you when we're listening to podcasts, on on the one hand, we, the amount of depth and information, and we can listen to anybody who's really interesting and maybe an expert in certain areas, and we listen to all of that. But yet, again where the context of podcasting information and the, the actual listening process sits is in our in our ears and we choose what, what we want to listen to. So it's kind of interesting how the, there's both those things kind of playing playing on each other at the, at the same time, perhaps. One thing I did want to ask you in terms of, of doing your PhD, 
And the fact that talk a little bit now about, or we talk, I talk quite a lot about the idea of, of podcast studies and, and what are the important aspects of, of an emerging discipline, what needs to be looked at. But obviously the methodological elements are key. And you, you, you sort of talk a little bit about the notion of a critical theory of podcasting coming come from, from Viner. And just sort of in that position of being a, a PhD scholar, you're you're kind of maybe setting the agenda for that more than someone like I, w- I would be. Would you say that there is a sort of a requirement to reshape or even sort of try to come up with new possibilities when it comes to methodologies for, for research in podcasting? To a certain extent, I think that um, sound studies... Uh, audio narratology, uh, the methodologies that are derived from radio studies are, to a certain extent, or up to a certain level, transferable, can be applied to uh, the analysis of podcasts. But then once again, it's so important to be you know, media conscious and to take into account the medium and the very specific medium of, of, of podcasts. So what I think would be uh, the, the the priority there uh, is probably, uh, and this is this is being done, um, establishing um, a precise typology uh, of of podcasts because podcast is such is such a catch-all phrase now and has been yeah. Um, so genre criticism is, is very difficult with podcasting, exactly, I think, because exactly. of the, the, the form and the content elements. But it's of also it. what makes it what's what makes it so 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 interesting and mm. and thought provoking, um, and yes, genre bending. Or uh, but um, yes, maybe coming up with um, better terms, better a better terminology rather than those very long, you know paraphrases to um i'm 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 currently struggling with defining the object of 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 my research and i have to go through you know very long phrases to explain what i'm actually working (laughs) on i'd like i'd like to have a a, you know shorter version of that um i I guess that's i don't know i I would say that was one of the the first steps in creating yes a, a, a medium specific methodology this piece that you've written, Storytelling to Story, Listening, How the Hit Podcast S-Town Reconfigured Production and Reception of Narrative Nonfiction. I mean, again, the, the the part of that is both the production and the reception. So you're talking about the ways in which the production is influenced by narrative you know, narrative possibilities, but then the way that that is also received. So there's a sense in which you're acknowledging that there's the whole podcasting is this whole kind of process it's not just one element of the the artifact and i'm wondering in 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 an overarching view of your of your phd is that the kind of structure that you're that you're kind of going for in terms of research that that doesn't look at one particular aspect or just kind of like the sound content there is this all of this infrastructure around what we call podcasting because i think personally i think that that's something that has to kind of be acknowledged when we do um, criticism or analysis of podcasting. My uh, so far, my 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 analysis is sort of threefold. It takes into account both the the history of the medium. Um, so you could say there's a, a, a media studies part. Then the it, then there's a part that is really medium specific and podcast specific. Uh, and then there's a, a, a third strand of my research that is really uh, interested in in literary criticism and I'm trying to to weave these uh, three strands together which is 
not an easy thing to do because I mean, interdisciplinarity is, I guess, what makes our field so so interesting, but also um, so challenging. Yes, and I'm trying to think of um, podcasts as um, more than just texts, obviously, more than just products or productions, but also as uh, practices, uh, podcasting as a, as a practice, etc. Yeah. And is it just is it just going to be written yourself though? You're not doing any podcasting no, no, in the no, yeah. It's always an interesting one that whether yeah. You know. um, yeah, I was but playing with the idea for a while, but then yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you set yourself up for a whole a whole other thing there because you've got exactly. to reflect on your practice yeah. and all this. Maybe later on as a as a as a postdoc, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So, what is, it, is there anything else that you're kind of listening to right now that you might recommend? Um, I mean, I don't know if you're just a you know narrative nonfiction junkie and that's what you listen to in the main, or is there other stuff? Is there anything that you can point us to? Uh, sort of. Well, I'm I'm very 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 you know, conventional and not original at all in my in my taste. So on a on a, on a daily basis, I mostly listen to news podcasts, which are, but um, sometimes I'm I'm you know surprised and and seduced by uh completely different types of podcasts i really like you know standalone podcasts where you, there's um so there's one that i recently discovered that's called appearances it's produced by um mermaid palace which is uh which was used to produce the heart with radiotopia and it's uh, so it's created by a woman called Sharon Mashihi, and it's described as uh, an audio mind trip. So uh, here you go for new terms, a new terminology, an audio mind trip about. Uh, so it's a, it's about um, it's an auto fiction, you could say. This woman writes about her experience as an Iranian American woman who's trying to come to terms with her family her family story and the family that she wants to have she wants to have a, a, a child and so it's as i said it's auto fiction that the creator and narrator sharon mashihi uses a pseudonym and alter ego to talk about her own experience but it's very very innovative in its use of um of voices because she voices uh, she gives a voice to most of the characters um, in the show. So she plays uh, her um, her alter ego. She plays her alter ego's mother. And um, it's very, very smart, smartly done, very self-reflexive. Um, and it's it's interesting because it really showcases and, and thematizes the questions of, of genre, of, of this genre of autofiction um, that, once again, crosses or blurs the line between uh, fiction and, and nonfiction. So um, I think it's an, an, an interesting uh, and innovative podcast uh, that would be the, the, the sort of equivalent of written autofiction, but bringing in the specificity of, of sound to it. So, yeah. That sounds really interesting because mm. there's always that device, isn't there, of creating an, an alternate voice. And I've been reading some of Don Ido. It's just quite, in, <laughs> it's quite convoluted writing, but he talks a little bit about this idea of the voice inside and the voice in the head and then the voice that gets articulated and the gap between when we think of something and then we say it. You know, and those are two. Those are actually two different, two different things, and this, that, that's where we start to trouble the idea of the subject. You know, which is yeah, yeah, which is also so important in in psychoanalysis. Well, Ella, thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>